right, welcome to Connect Church. I figure if I can get you to laugh, I can get you to listen. This is one of my favorite moments in TV history. I'm a big fan of The Simpsons. I grew up watching it. I think it's like incredibly insightful and funny. And there are some parts in that two minutes of television that I really, really really relate to. And I bet some of you do as well. You know what it's like to walk into a church service, to sit down in the seat, and to be bored out of your mind. Now, hopefully not too often here at Connect, okay? But it does happen from time to time, no doubt about it. I've been in those services where the only thing I wanted to do was fall asleep. Now, when I went to church, in the church that I went to, we didn't meet in a movie theater. So we didn't have these comfy, lean-back sort of seats. We had those hard pews. Do you guys know that hard pews were put in on purpose to keep people awake? They are supposed to be uncomfortable. And uh, yeah, so I know what it's like to sit through a service and to just want to go to sleep because I'm so bored. I also know what it's like to be on the opposite side of that stage, to be the guy standing in the spotlight, to be speaking for 25 or 35 minutes, and to know that I'm boring 90% of the people in the crowd. I've been there, you guys. Again, it's not often. I I don't think like I've ever put an entire crowd of people to sleep like Reverend Lovejoy did. But you know, there have definitely been some Sunday mornings where I've looked out and I just see that partly cloudy look on people's faces, you know, just kind of staring off into the distance. I know what it's like to be bored in church. I know what it's like to be boring, unfortunately, in church as well. I also know what it's like for church to be over, to go home, to walk in through the front door and immediately just start stripping off every bit of clothes, you know? Amber's like, can you just wait till you get to the bedroom, please? And I'm like, no way. This is like one of the best moments of the entire week. How many of you guys know Sunday afternoons are made for naps? Like as soon as you get home from church, just, man, it's the best thing in the world. If you don't normally do it, try it this week. I call them holy naps. There's just something about a holy nap after Sunday morning service. It's, it's amazing. And I'll be honest, with you, I also know what it's like to be a part of church services that were so boring, so unhelpful, so unrelated to the rest of my life that I would literally choose to do almost anything besides sit through another one of those services. Anybody ever been there? I, yeah, come on. It's okay. Nobody's going to be mad. You could even say it was one of your services, Dan. It doesn't hurt my feelings that bad, okay? We've all been there. Did you notice the family was more excited about going to the dump than they were going to church in that video? Oh, it cracks me up, man. It really does. So there's a lot of truth in that very, very short clip of television. But you know what? There's also one thing that the Simpsons get incredibly wrong about church. They are so, so wrong about kind of the basic premise behind that whole series of jokes. And I wonder if some of us, me and you, if we haven't bought into the same untruth about what church is, the same false idea about church and what it has to be every single week. My guess is If you were to buy into this false notion of church, this wrong idea of what church is, it will rob church of both its power and its purpose. If you make the same mistake that the characters in The Simpsons did, you'll show up every single morning on Sundays and you'll say, what's the point in this? I don't know if I understand why I show up. Maybe it's not even worth it. You probably, probably, probably will either 
eventually skip church altogether or you'll just show up and sleep through it because you're making a fatal assumption. What's that fatal mistake? What's that false idea? What's that myth about church that the Simpsons make and so many of us do as well? Here it is. The myth is that church is merely an event you endure. The church is merely an event that you endure. Now, if you were paying close attention to that clip from The Simpsons, basically every one of the characters, they make this mistake. They believe this false thing about the church. So it started with Marge. She looks at Homer and she says, Homer, the Lord only asks for one hour a week. Okay? No, he doesn't, but we'll get to that in a moment. Basically, the idea is, Homer, if you could just do what God wants you to do from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, then you could go do whatever you want the rest of the week. Just give him one hour, for goodness sake, then go live your life. Lisa, she bought into this, this false idea about the church as well. She was kicking off her shoes, and at you know 11.30, she said, this is the best part of the week, because it is the longest possible time before more church. Basically, the idea is if I go, I can do my church thing for an hour and then I've got the whole rest of the week before I have to go back and do that church thing again. And then, of course, Homer wrapped it all up. He reinforced the idea when he makes the joke that, yeah, church should be helpful to the rest of your life, but it's not. Everybody knows that. So let's just quit pretending. Hmm? And who wants to go to the dump? This idea that church is simply an event that you have to endure. That church is one hour that's disconnected from the other 166 hours that we have every single week. It is prevalent in our world today. Many, many people show up and they think, okay, I'm gonna do my church thing for the hour and then I don't have to think about God or church or anything like that until next Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Am I telling the truth or am I lying here? Yeah, I'm telling the truth for sure. But the problem is, when you read the Bible, Jesus was incredibly clear that church is a mission and not an event. See, in 2019, we tend to look at church like it's an event. It's a one-hour thing. And so we show up to the building, we sit in the pews, we passively observe everything that happens, or we go to sleep, or whatever the case may be. And then it's over, and we get to get back to the rest of our real lives. But when you read Jesus' words about what he intends for the church, the church is not an event that you endure. The church is a mission that you participate in. And there's a big difference between an event and a mission. You see, an event begins and ends on a schedule. You know that you're looking at church as an event when you look at your watch and you're like, dude, it's 11.04. You promised I was getting out at 11 a.m. sharp. Because events begin and end on a schedule, but a mission continues 24-7 until it's accomplished. There's no start time. There's no end time. There are no hours that they're open and hours that they're closed. A mission is a lifestyle, not simply one small part of a week. You can watch an event, but you can't simply watch a mission. You participate in a mission. You get involved in a mission. The truth is you can skip an event, even an event that you like or an event that you want to go to. If you skip it, it's kind of like, oh, well, no big deal. You cannot skip a mission. You will give your life for the right mission. You'll give everything you've got to participate in this thing that is transforming the world. An event, eh, 
Who gets excited about an event? But man, a mission, that's something worth getting hyped up over. An event, well, you can control an event. You know, you can control it. You cannot control a mission. A mission will go and grow It will conquer and it will overtake any single hurdle that stands in its way. It will not be satisfied until the mission itself is actually accomplished. Guys, I think if you wanna properly understand the church, if you want church to stop being boring, if you want church to just stop being like this one hour compartmentalized part of your week that has nothing to do with the other 166 hours that you live, you have to start thinking about church as a mission and not simply an event that you have to endure. This is the way Jesus always intended it. If you look in Matthew chapter number 16, we find a really interesting passage. Jesus is gonna have a conversation with his 12 disciples. And there's so much in these four or five verses here that I kind of just wanna walk through it this morning so that you'll have a fuller sense of the mission that God has called you to participate in. And again, if you really grab a hold of these words, if you transform your perspective on church so that it's no longer an event, now it's a mission that you're getting involved in, then church Sunday mornings, they stop being boring. My preaching doesn't get any better, but you start understanding what my preaching is supposed to accomplish. Okay, here we go. Look at this. Matthew chapter number 16. We'll start reading here in verse number 13. The Bible says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Now we're gonna pause there for just a moment because some of you might get tripped up on that phrase, son of man. You may be thinking, you may be thinking I thought he was the son of God. Why is he calling himself the son of man? Maybe it's true that Christians just created a myth about the deity of Jesus. You know, the legends grew and eventually we gave him qualities that he never claimed for himself. So I want you to be really clear in understanding that son of man is actually a reference back to a title that was used in a few places in the Old Testament. And it was used to refer to God and his emissaries, his messengers here on earth. So when you read this in the New Testament, if you pay attention, like stylistically, I chose to use all caps on this verse. But if you actually read it in the Bible, what you find out is that son of man is capitalized because it's a title. Jesus is not simply saying, hey, who do you guys, who who do people say that me, the little old son of Joseph is. That's not his point. He's claiming something more for himself. He's using a title that his original audience would have been like, did he just say he was the son of man? We're like, oh, he was just the son of man. But the people that he said this to were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that about himself. So don't get hung up too much on that. It meant something different than what the the first reading might actually entail or lead you to believe. So when he came to this region, he said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? In verse 14, they replied, well, some people say that you are John the Baptist. Now we talked about John the Baptist a few weeks ago. He was Jesus' cousin. He had been killed by the Roman governor of of Israel, of Judea at the time. And so some people are like, man, the spirit who was on John the Baptist has now come on to you, Jesus. You are basically John the Baptist 2.0. Then 
Others say that you're Elijah. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. And there was kind of this idea that one day Elijah was going to return to Israel and he was gonna drop the prophecy hammer on everybody once again. And so people are like, oh, you're Elijah come down from heaven to push people back towards God. And then other people said, you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So basically they started linking Jesus to all of these men from the Old Testament or uh, from the beginning of the New Testament, okay? Then in verse 15, Jesus asks a critical question. He says, but what about you? What about you? What about you? What about you guys, the 12 of you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, who was kind of the leader of the 12 disciples, he was mouthy. He was the first one to always jump in with the answer. He was wrong a lot. I don't know if you remember that kid in school, the one who was always like, me, call on me. And you call on him, it's the wrong answer. And that was Simon Peter. Simon Peter, for once in his life, though, gets it exactly right. He speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Christ is a word that means anointed one. It means sent one. It means somebody who comes on God's behalf. Okay, so this was a big title. And for Simon Peter to make this declaration was a big deal. Up until this point, nobody had called Jesus the Christ. I don't know if you guys knew that. Christ is not his last name, it's a title. Nobody had called Jesus the Christ yet. So Simon Peter gets bold and he says, Jesus, we believe not that you're John the Baptist's spirit, not that you're Elijah reincarnated, not that you're simply a wise spiritual teacher. We believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, if you say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God himself. He never claimed to be the son of God. He was just a wise man who eventually the church added a lot of like myth and legend around. Then in this moment, Jesus would have said to Simon Peter, whoa, whoa, don't get it twisted, bro. I'm just a dude like you are. I'm nobody special. I just pay close attention to God and you could be close to God just like I am. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he accepts and he validates what Simon Peter has to say. And he says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Then he goes on and he says in verse number 18, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I want to pause here for a moment. We're actually going to read just a bit further in this passage, but I want to stop here because there's a lot happening in this one verse. And if you really want to get the point that Jesus is making, you kind of got to dig in just a little bit. So when uh, Peter confesses Jesus and he says, hey, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, exactly right. A plus sticker for you. Go to the front of the lunch line, Peter. Well done, right? He's happy with him. It's the right answer. And he says, you didn't get that by figuring it out with your brain. That was revealed to you by God. That's a spiritual answer. And it came from a spiritual source. And so then he says to Peter, uh, keep in mind, his name, his birth name was Simon. His nickname was Peter, okay? His nickname was Peter. And so Jesus says to him, in the same way that you are Peter, calling him by his nickname. And in the Greek, he uses a word called petros, and it means a small stone, okay? 
means a small stone. He was given this nickname. It's like calling somebody Rocky, you know, like somebody who's kind of just like, "Mm," you know, they're just a little hard. They're a little like, I don't know about this kid, man. There's just, uh, he's got some rough edges around him. Okay. And so Jesus is going to make a play on his name and he's going to teach something that transformed the world, has power to transform your world as well. He says, now you are Petros, small stone. Then he says, on this rock, I will build my Petra. I will build, I will place on this rock. I will place, build my church. And the word that he uses there for build is not Petros, the small stone. It's Petra, which means a giant cliff or a huge mountain. This is a massive boulder. So I want to pause because some of you guys come to us from a Catholic tradition. And I love our Catholic brothers and sisters. They do a lot of good in the world. Um, I'm not going to like pick on them or anything, but there are a few places that I would disagree with them. And this is one of the places where I might disagree with them. And the reason is when our Catholic brothers and sisters look at this, they say, okay, Jesus is saying to Peter, okay, you are the small stone. And on this small stone, I'm going to build my church. It's this exact verse that Catholics get the idea of the Pope from, okay? The entire papacy, the whole idea that there's one guy that lives at the Vatican and he rules over the church, it literally comes from the next two verses here, okay? The problem is that he doesn't say, you're Petros, the small stone, and on this small stone, I'm going to build my church. He uses a different word because he's making a play on the words. And so he says here instead, you're a small stone, but I'm going to build my church on a huge rock, strong foundation, a mountain that is immovable. He doesn't say, you are Peter. I am going to build my church on Peter. He doesn't say, Dan, you're a small stone and I want to build Connect Church on you. No, he says, you guys, you have a confession of faith. And that's a good thing. Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But the church itself is going to be established on something much bigger, something much more stable, something much more beautiful than any one person. I tell you guys this all the time. Connect Church is not built on me. It is not built on Amber. The history of the church is not built on Peter and Pope Pius XVIII or whoever else there might've been. The church is built on the people who hold to the same confession that Peter said, that Jesus, we believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is who the church is, the people who have the same confession that Peter did, okay? So then he goes on. He says, you're Petros, but on this Petra, this large stone, your confession of faith, your belief in me as your savior. He said, I will build my church. And this is the very first time in the Bible the word church shows up. This is late in the game. You see how much, like, this is all the stuff that came before. This is the stuff that came after. So church is pretty late in the game, but church is still incredibly important. I gave you a definition last week for what church is. Church is an English translation of a Greek word called ekklesia. And the Greek word ekklesia literally means a group of people who are called out for a specific purpose. 
okay? A group of people called out for a specific purpose. So I told you last week, when we think of church, we have to think in terms of people and not buildings, people and not buildings. Today, when we think of church, I want you to understand that we have to think in terms of mission and not event. We are called out for a specific mission by God. We are not called out to sit in a dark theater for an hour and fall asleep. We are called to something much bigger, something much better than that. So he goes on and he says, I tell you that you're Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church. And then he says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There's a little bit of interesting um, context that's going on here. We read in, in verse number 13 that Jesus had taken the disciples to a region called Caesarea Philippi. This is a specific area of the country of Israel. And we know that he probably brought them to a, a mountain called Mount Hermon. This was like the big geographical feature. You can go to Israel today and you can go visit Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon or Caesarea Philippi, this was known as a religious place. For thousands and thousands of years, there had been all of these different temples to different gods. There were small regional deities and there were big like world known deities. But this was a place that for whatever reason, people thought was a thin spot between earth and the heavenly and the hellish realm. There were caves all in Mount Hermon. And there were all of these um, rumors and legends that, you know, this was the spot that you could transition into the underworld, into the afterlife. There were these rumors that people who spent too much time there, who went there with unclean hearts or people who got too deep into the cave system, that they could actually fall into the gates of Hades and not be able to get back out. So this was a place that had a lot of religious symbolism, particularly for Jews. The average Jewish person would not have gone to this area of Mount Hermon, this area known as the gates of Hades because of all of the false idol worship that had been associated associated there. Okay. So it's in the middle of this setting that Jesus uses kind of this, this geographic area and this well-known location that was called the gates of Hades. And he says, basically to them, you guys think that there are a few unfortunate souls who have been gobbled up by the caves and they've been imprisoned by the gates of Hades. You know, Hades was actually the Roman God of the underworld. He was kind of like the keeper of the damned, so to speak, all right? He said, you guys think that there are a few unfortunate souls that are down there trapped by the gates of Hades. But Jesus is about to make a turn here that is so good. He's gonna start to communicate to the disciples throughout the rest of his ministry that it's not just a few people who happen to make the wrong choices or go to the wrong places or anything like that that are trapped by the gates of death. Instead, Jesus is gonna point out that our entire world is held captive by the gates of Hades, the gates of death, Listen, people all over Calgary, man, they make decisions, they have thoughts, they're trapped in habits, and they, it, they might as well be trapped by death. They can't get free, they can't get loose, they can't break the, the sins and the attitudes and actions and habits that are holding them down. And Jesus is like, it's like we've got a world of prisoners out there. People who want to be free, but they don't know how to get free. People who can't even conceive of any sort of freedom because this is all they've ever known. Being trapped, being locked up, being imprisoned by the gates of Hades. Listen, you see it every single day. People 
some of them even who claim the name of Jesus. And they make decisions that keep them imprisoned. They make decisions that lead to death, emotional death, relational death, physical death, financial death, spiritual death. We live in a world of people who are imprisoned by the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of death. The good news is Jesus points out that these gates are not impenetrable. These gates are not as strong as they might first appear. He says, he says, I'm going to build my church on people who confess what you confess, Peter, that I am sent from God to save and to set free. I'm going to build my church. My church is not a building. It's a group of people. It's a group of people who are set free on a mission. And when this group is unleashed on the world, the gates of hell themselves will not be able to stand against what I'm about to do. I don't love the way that last phrase is translated, the gates of hell will not overcome it, because it almost sounds like hell's on the offensive, and we're the Christians who were like, oh, leave me alone, devil, leave me alone, hell. I got out. You stay over there. I'm going to stay over here. That is not at all what Jesus means. Gates are defensive measures. And Jesus, the way that he actually says this, it says that the gates of hell will not be able to stand against these people who have been called out for a specific mission and purpose in the world. It is the confession of Jesus as Lord. It is the power behind his resurrection from the dead that will unlock the gates of death in your life and in our world. People who have lived their entire lives captive can be set free. Even all the powers of hell can't stand against the church when it is mobilized and it is living on mission. Many of you have been set free. You've been behind those gates. You've been trapped and barred in. And then Jesus or somebody bearing Jesus' keys has come along. They've opened the gate for you. You've walked out and you know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He says, I'm gonna build my mission of people and they are going to set the world free. Last verse, verse 19. He says, to Peter, to all the disciples, to me and to you by extension. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus continues this metaphor of people being trapped, locked behind the gates of death. And he says, you know what, guys? I'm going to give you, 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 I'm going to give you and you, you get a key, you get a key, you get a key, you get a key, you get a key. Everybody gets a key because there are too many people trapped behind the gates of death. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus does not say, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. He doesn't say, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. He says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Because the keys that Jesus places in the hands of his followers, they don't unlock the front doors to heaven. They unlock the gates of hell. 
These are heavenly keys that are meant to be used to help people who are bound, trapped, and imprisoned in our world. Do you understand the mission, the purpose that Jesus has given us? It is not to throw a killer party every week. I want to have a killer party here every Sunday. I really do. I want this service to be as good as it can possibly be. But that is not the mission that Jesus established his church for. Jesus' mission, the purpose he's given us is not to generate hype that leads nowhere. That's a waste. It's pointless. No reason for that. And I'll tell you, the purpose of Jesus is not to develop a group of people who will sit around and congratulate each other on being free. Hey, you got out of the gates of death. Good work, man. What's up? Look at us. We're so good. And then while they're busy congratulating themselves on being free, they're criticizing everybody who's still imprisoned. Look at those fools over there. They don't know. They're so dumb. What is wrong with them? Why can't they be like us? This is not the mission that Jesus established his church for. Instead, he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then you are going to go turn some locks. You are going to set some people in your life free. Jesus has given us the keys of the kingdom so that we can set people free from darkness, from suffering, from death, from evil, from sin, from hopelessness, from a life without God. We have the keys in our hands. You know, the keys represent permission and authority, right? If you give me the key to your house, you are giving me permission and authority to come over to your house and open the door when I need to. Water the plants, let the dog out. I have permission and authority if you give me the keys. Jesus has given us the keys. And with the keys, you have permission and authority to set some folks free in your office, on your ball team, in your dorm room, in your family, in our neighborhoods, you've been given keys and the keys are meant to set others free. Speaking of being given keys, I gave you a key when you walked in, didn't I? Go ahead, pull that sucker out. Pull that out. I want you to hold it in your hand. If you didn't get a key, you can throw your hand up. We've got some people over here who'd be glad to give you a key because I want everybody to have a key. Get that key out. You say, God's called me to unlock some doors. He's given me the keys to the kingdom. What does that even mean, dude? The church in 2019, Connect Church and every other church, we are going to unlock the gates of hell the same way the church has unlocked the gates of hell and death for thousands of years. It is through love. Love is the key to unlocking the gates for those that are imprisoned. If you read in the Bible, we find this really incredible verse. Somebody comes to Jesus one time and they say, Jesus, hey, what does it mean to be one of your followers? What's the greatest commandment? What, like, what are we supposed to be doing here? And in the book of Matthew, we'll put the verse here on the screen for you. Jesus says, you must 
love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets, basically the entire Bible can be summed up in these two commands. Love God and love others. If you'll do that, you will start hearing locks click. You will start seeing gates swing open. You will see people walk out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You will see people discovering life overflowing in Jesus. You've been given the keys to the kingdom or the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And the key is love. First Corinthians chapter number 13 tells us love never fails. I'm gonna fail you at your, as your pastor at some point. Sunday mornings are gonna fail you at some point. Your group leader is gonna fail you at some point. Love never fails. Can I tell you guys, the gates of hell are unlocked by the love of Christ. Whatever suffering, whatever pain, whatever imprisonment, whatever difficulty it is that you or anyone else in our world is going through, the keys of the kingdom have been placed in our hands. And if we will use them lovingly, people will be set free because church is more than an event. It's more than something you just sit and watch. It is a mission. It's a rescue mission. It is a mission to bind and to loose. It is a mission in which you've been given permission and authority to go change the world. People get confused about church because they think church is just this one hour a week where we sit and we watch and it's disconnected from the rest of our lives. But as we wrap up this morning, I want you to know the church exists in two states. The church exists both gathered and scattered. The church exists in two states. It is both gathered and the church exists when it is scattered. So we are the gathered church right now. We have gathered together for an hour. And when the church is gathered, it is most visible. People are like, oh, there's Connect Church. They've all gathered together. When the church is gathered, it's most visible. But when the church is scattered, it is most powerful. Why? Because when we're gathered, all the keys are concentrated here in Theater One in Balzac at the Cineflex. But when we're scattered, the keys to the kingdom of heaven are brought into every single classroom and office and job site and neighborhood and corner in our city. So it's a wonderful thing when we gather together. The gathering is so very important. We gather on Sundays to celebrate the freedom that we have in Jesus. We have been set free by him. And we gather to remind ourselves that every single moment of the day, we carry around the keys to somebody else's freedom. So we gather to celebrate and then we scatter to set free. This is the church. It's not a building, it's people. And it's not an event. It is a mission. And if you start thinking about it in those terms, this gets pretty exciting. And the rest of the week gets charged with meaning and purpose and value that it's never had before. Because now it's not just about you making all the money you can. Now it's not just about you driving the nicest car you can or having the best vacation or living the happiest life you can. You know that you've been placed on this earth to turn some locks, set some people free and change the course 
of history. You say, Dan, come on, man, you're hyping that up too much. It's been happening for 2,000 years. Not because of professionals like me, but because of everyday people like you who understand the power they carry around every single day. So the keys, the kingdom of heaven, are represented by this stupid little brass key that I gave you when you walked in. This is yours. I want you to keep it. I want you to carry it with you as you leave. And I want it to serve as a reminder of what God has given you. And I'm curious, what does God want you to unlock with the keys of the kingdom of heaven that he's placed in your hands? What does he want you to unlock? What does he want you to set free? The cool thing is, this is basically the the keys to the kingdom of heaven. They're a skeleton key. They will open absolutely any door. You've got a friend in your life and they are hardcore opposed to God, to religion, not with the right key, they're not. Whatever you bind in heaven, whatever you loose in heaven. If you've got friends, if you've got family that you've been praying for, if you've got a dream in your heart that God has placed there and it serves his kingdom, I'm telling you, you have the keys to unlock those gates and to set people free. Also, it's a bottle opener. I didn't know if you knew that or not, but there you go. Just a little gift from me. It'll open anything, anything. So here's what I want you to do. I, want you, I just want you to focus on this key for a moment. And I want you to think the key is a symbol. This doesn't open anything. I mean, it's just like, this is a symbol. And I want you to think, who in my life can I help set free? What in my life can I help change and transform? I have the permission. I have the authority. I have the empowerment. I have the keys already. So what's stopping me from unlocking gates, swinging open those doors? Let me pray for you. Jesus, I pray that each and every person would know the authority and power that they've been given. God, I pray that we would use the key of love and truth and grace to transform people, to unlock the lock and to set them free in the same way that we have been set free by the love and truth of Jesus. Whatever this key represents in each person's mind, in their soul, whatever you're calling them to do, God, I pray that they would believe it can be accomplished through you and that, God, we really would see some radical transformations and freedom happening in the lives of the people around us. We pray this by faith in your name, amen. And then as I wrap up, not done yet. This key also might represent your relationship with God. Because you might be here this morning and you're like, but Dan, I mean, like, I feel like I'm the one that's trapped. I feel like I'm the one that's boxed in. I keep getting stuck in the same cycles. I feel terrible about myself. I'm looking for something more, but I don't even know what that something more is. I'm telling you, the gates of hell and death are unlocked by the love of Christ. What you need is for Jesus to turn the key and to set you free. It takes us back to the same question that Jesus asked Peter at the beginning of this whole discussion when he said, okay, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? 
And if you will believe by faith, the same thing that Peter believed, the other disciples believe that we believe, that Jesus is God's Christ. He is the savior. He was sent so that we could have a relationship with God. If you'll believe that, despite all of your questions, doubts, you're like, yeah, but what about, and I'm not so sure, and maybe I don't fully believe, guess what? You can still have a relationship with God and still have questions. I do. But if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus, that key will turn. You'll be set free spiritually. And then that freedom will start to work its way into every other aspect of your life. And so I wanna give you the opportunity to ask Jesus to set you free today, to turn the lock, to open the doors, let you walk out and experience life overflowing in him. So bow your heads, close your eyes. If you say, hey, that's me, I want you to just pray for me. And then I'm gonna lead you in a simple prayer. You might just repeat these words after me. Jesus, today I feel trapped. I don't know how to get free, but I'm trusting you to set me free. Forgive me for getting myself in this mess in the first place. God, thank you for loving me, giving me new hope in life. If you just prayed that prayer, I wanna know about it. The way that you can tell me is by marking the decision card that's in the cup holder next to you. If you've been set free, man, I'm gonna celebrate with you. We're gonna go run around like crazy. We're gonna have a blast. And then we're gonna pick up those keys and we're gonna go set some more people free together because this is what church really is all about. 